Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Greetings to one and all. Welcome back to A More Perfect Union. And as usual, our roundtable of stalwarts is with us again. Uh, you're all still feeling pretty stalwart, I assume. Anyway, uh, Dr. Natalie Alinos is with us and uh, Representative Jeff Roy from the Hill and along with Dr. Michael Walker-Jones. Today, they bring to us some esteemed guests. While you are stalwart, our guests will be esteemed. I'm Peter Jay. And I now like to turn it over to Jeff Roy to talk about what the state auditor's role is. And we will investigate that thoroughly this morning. And I am so quickly going to turn it over to my dear friend, Natalie Alinos, who's going to introduce Chris Dempsey, who's going to tell us what the auditor does. He's running for that office. I think you'd much rather hear from him about what that uh, job entails. Correct? Let's hear applause for that uh, statement. Yay. Can you bring in the studio audience? Thank you. That's correct. Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Chris, for joining us. As Jeff just mentioned, we have Chris Dempsey with us. Uh, I get the honor to introduce him, I think in part because, you know, I'm a Brookline resident. Uh, I served briefly on town meeting with, with Chris. Chris has been a member of town meeting elected since 2012, but he has been much more active across the state, not just in Brookline. He served as assistant secretary of transportation for Governor Patrick, and in 2015 was named Boston Globe's Bostonian of the year because some volunteer work he did on the No Boston Olympics. So I'm really excited to hear about that as well as his you know, what it means to be auditor and why he thinks he is uh, best qualified for this race. And Dems uh, Chris, we're going to call you Chris, not uh, with your full name, but um, welcome to the show this morning. And, and thank you for joining us. Atalia, thank you for that kind introduction. And it feels like we're really spanning all of Norfolk County today with a couple <laughs> of us in Brookline and others down in the southwest corner of Norfolk County in Franklin. It's really wonderful to join this show. I've Heard a little bit about it from you, Natalia, over the last few months and from Jeff over the last few months and excited to be talking with you and all of your listeners today. So I'm Chris Dempsey. I'm running to be the next auditor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And Auditor Suzanne Bump has been serving us well for about 12 years now. She was first elected in 2010. She is not seeking re-election. So this is an open seat I'm running in the Democratic primary, which is September 6th of this year, and hope to win that and then enter the general. So the same time that everyone is voting for governor and lieutenant governor and secretary of state, they're voting for auditor. What the auditor does is it's really a watchdog uh, Chris, role. Chris, uh, let's remind them that they're also voting for state representative in the same election. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> Maybe the most important race on the ballot. 
uh, this year is, is sending Rep Roy uh, back to Beacon Hill. So the auditor has a team of about 200 auditors and analysts. And we send that team into every corner of the executive branch of state government. So all of the state agencies, whether that's the MBTA, whether it's the Department of Environmental Protection or the Department of Children and Families, and we assess how those agencies are doing, whether they are living up to the expectations of the law or the expectations that we all have as taxpayers and residents that those agencies are serving us well. And when we find places where things aren't working, where there's waste or fraud or abuse, we call that out. And then we make recommendations to the legislature, to the executive branch, and really to the public at large about the changes that we need. So the auditor has relatively limited powers in terms of direct policy change. That's the job of the legislature and the governor. But the auditor has strong indirect authority as that independent watchdog representing every citizen in Massachusetts to make sure that that state government is serving us well. And when it's not, you're going to see me be, be that strong independent watchdog fighting for taxpayers and residents to make our commonwealth stronger. Hey, Chris, I was wondering uh, if you could tell us, I know you were very active uh, with the Olympics and uh, the effort to um, stem the uh, tide there. And I, I think that's one of those things that's uh, unique. And uh, perhaps you could tell us about what that involved and how that may uh, equip you to do the job as the auditor. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. I'm proud of the work I've done inside of government, and I hope we can talk about that some more this morning, but also proud of the work I've done outside of state government to protect taxpayers and residents. In 2015, some of the most powerful businessmen in Massachusetts, and yes, they mostly were men, got together behind closed doors, and they came up with this idea to bring the Olympics to Boston in 2024. And as exciting as that idea was for many of us, when you read the fine print of that proposal, you saw that it required, we saw, it required all of us as state taxpayers to cover 100% of the Olympic cost overruns. I often say, if you liked the big dig, you would love the Boston 2024 Olympics for its potential to result in billions and billions and billions of cost overruns that we would be responsible for. And as much as I like sports and actually thought the idea of three weeks of the Olympics could be really fun, I also saw that we are a state where we know we have so many needs in public education, in public health, in transportation, in the environment. And I saw those priorities being put at risk in service of this three-week sporting event. And so I created, co-founded in a living room, a group called No Boston Olympics. And we went up against the most powerful titans of industry, all the best known political relations and public relations firms in Boston advocating for that bid. And we got outspent 1,500 to one. They spent $15 million. We spent less than $10,000 on our side. But we had two things going for us. The first is we had the facts and the data. We dug into the details of what that bid would be. We worked with people like Professor Andrew Zimbalist at Smith College, who happens to be one of the world's leading experts on the cost of the Olympics and lives right here in Massachusetts. So we built that fact base, but then we also got organized and we held public meetings. We brought people together. We informed the public directly and through the media. And through that grassroots effort, we were successful at first turning the tide of public opinion, 
and then eventually turning the tide of the elected officials who had been pushing that bid. And my takeaway, Jeff, from that successful effort is that when you put good data and information in front of the people of Massachusetts, we make smart decisions. We are a smart group of voters. And that's the role of the state auditor fundamentally is to dig into the executive branch of state government, figure out what's working and what needs to change, and then put that information forward. And when we do that, we will build a stronger Commonwealth together through that process. So it wasn't that you didn't realize Olympics I, or anything. It was uh, it was more trying to save taxpayer dollars in that effort. Just is that fair I'm to a say? sports fan. I, I love when we host the World Series. I love when we host the NBA championship. I'm excited about the World Cup potentially coming to Massachusetts in a couple of years. None of those amazing sporting events have nearly the costs and the risks that the Olympics have. They're one one thousandth of the cost. So we can have plenty of celebrations in, Ma in Massachusetts. We can be the best sports region in the entire country without sacrificing our future needs, public needs as a Commonwealth to the Olympics. I didn't realize that, uh, uh, Chris, you and I had that in common. Uh, the founding, one of the founding members of this podcast, as a matter of fact, uh, Frank Falvey recruited me uh, along with a number of others. And we worked diligently here in Franklin on that campaign uh, to stop the Olympics from coming here. Uh, yes, they to... did. They were on me every single day. <laughs> <of the week. laughs> and I freely admit that, uh, uh, again, I love the Olympics. Uh, but one of the things that I have had a problem with with the Olympics, and again, this goes back to your I guess, desire for transparency and openness and keeping the general public informed. And one of the things that happens in almost every single country where the Olympics go uh, is that they end up not only costing more to the general person off the street to host those games, but then they also, and one of the things that Frank and I were, were really against is they create an infrastructure that in some cases, look at Brazil. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I remember using some of the pictures from Brazil as I talked to people uh, where they ended up with an infrastructure uh, that literally went to waste after the Olympics were over. Uh, and so uh, I applaud you for that. And I applaud you for your run for, uh, uh, for, for auditor. And let me ask you this, can the auditor do do more than just sort of uh, do oversight? Can the auditor make suggestions about efficiency? And let me give you an example. While you were assistant uh, uh, transportation director, one of the things that I also have been advocating for for decades has been the creation of the electromagnetic rail system in this country. It's a hundred year plus project. And yet I have not run into a single politician, including my good friend, Jeff, who has who has what I call the uh, the courage at this point to take on such a massive project. And again, we're talking about a huge expenditure. But at the end of the day, this is almost the opposite of the Olympics. We end up with an infrastructure with new technology similar to the space program. And yet here in America, we're not willing to. Uh, sort of strategically move forward? Can the auditor have any impact on a program like that? Yeah, Michael, I think it's a great question. And the answer is absolutely yes, in the sense that the auditor's role is not limited strictly to producing these reports and audits about the functions of the executive branch of state government. 
it comes with a platform for advocacy on Beacon Hill. Now, I want to be very clear that I don't think that Massachusetts voters want to just elect another politician with a lot of opinions about things that are not backed up by facts. When I'm taking positions on Beacon Hill, I want those to be based on the work that my team, my auditing team has done and actually uncovered and, and dug in on because otherwise you're creating real inconsistency and a lack of clarity about who's responsible for what on Beacon Hill. But with that backing, we can weigh in on broader policy issues. Auditor Bump did that recently with a report she put out that she calls the Rural Rescue Plan, which digs in on issues in state government that are particularly affecting rural communities. For example, there are rural communities across the state where up to half of their land area is actually owned by the state, mostly in the form of state forests. And it's essential that those communities receive pilot payments, payment in lieu of taxes to make their municipal budgets work. The formula for those pilot payments is a little bit old. It doesn't really account for the fact that population might be dropping in some of these communities. And so it really harms some of these places, especially in Western Massachusetts. She started a conversation about the need to reform that proposal. And it didn't just get covered in the Berkshire Eagle or the Springfield Republican out West. It also got covered by the Boston Globe and by WGBH. And so it shows the statewide nature of that role. Let me talk, Michael, just quickly about the work I did do for Governor Patrick to make public transportation work better for people. And I am a dedicated public transit rider myself. I will be the first statewide elected official to commute to Beacon Hill by transit since Mike Dukakis left office in 1991. It's been 30 years since we've had that. And this is not a campaign gimmick for me. This is who I am. I'm someone that rides transit and it's how I like to get around when it works. When I was working for Governor Patrick, I was a bus rider and commuting uh, often from either Somerville or Cambridge, depending on what year um, we were in the administration and frustrated that you would look down the street and not know where your bus was. You didn't know if your bus was four minutes away or 44 minutes away. And you might be out there in the rain, in the snow, you know, kind of huddled together with other bus riders with a total lack of awareness and knowledge about where that bus is. And at the same time, I'm working inside of state government. And I saw that the MBTA management actually had access to the real-time information of every single bus in the system. We had already installed GPS units on the buses, but we weren't sharing that information with customers. Incredibly frustrating for someone like me waiting for the bus. And so I started what's called the open data program at MassDOT, which made that data available to the public, whether it was a kid coding in his parents' basement or whether it was Microsoft and Google. And literally within hours of us releasing that information, people had taken that data and made publicly accessible websites that told you where your bus was. And within about a week, we had smartphone applications. We made the MBTA the very first transit agency on the entire East Coast. The MBTA is not an agency known for innovation, not an agency known for leading. We made it the first on the East Coast to make that data available to riders. I'm really proud of that record of reforming state government, making it work better from the inside. And it's why I'm running for this role, which is ultimately a role about reform. Chris, one of my priorities is climate change and ensuring, and I know it is also for Jeff, given his role, and I think you had put forward or you have put forward a proposal of how the auditor can ensure that, you know, some of the lofty goals that we have set and that the public wants 
Like, can you explain a little bit that more? Because I like what you just said that, you know, you're not putting in place new policy ideas, but you're ensuring that things that we have agreed on as a, you know, as a, as a society that you make sure that it happens. So can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I'm glad to. And we're really proud of what we're putting out there on climate. But let me just first um, share your acknowledgement of Jeff Roy, Rep Roy, on this issue. He has been a leader in particular on, on wind energy. And um, I really respect both the vision and the pragmatism that he has on this issue. You have to marry those two perspectives together to actually succeed on clean energy. And Jeff is leading the way in the House of Representatives on that. So bravo, Rep Roy, for your work there. We've put out what I truly believe is a nation-leading plan on climate change, and we will make the auditor's office a national leader on climate. And we'll do that by making it the first in the country to incorporate carbon accounting into our audits of state agencies. And that will allow us to hold those agencies accountable for the laws that are on the books, passed by Rep Roy and his colleagues on Beacon Hill, that require emissions reductions across industries in Massachusetts. But we know there's a significant gap between the promises that we've made and where we actually are as a state. And this carbon accounting technique can call out that difference and make very clear for managers within state government where they are not meeting expectations that we and, and mandates that we now have. So I, I truly believe we will be the first in the country to do this, but we will not be the last. We will make the office a national leader. And that's really how we win at the end of the day on climate change. It's not just about reducing emissions in Massachusetts, although that's critically important. It's also about making Massachusetts a leader so that other states move with us and we get the broader national and ultimately global emissions reductions that we need to tackle this problem. Chris, we put some uh, language in the most recent bill on uh, for tax incentives, uh, tax credits for agencies. What's the role of the auditor in making sure that there's accountability uh, for those particular uh, incentives that are in our offshore wind bill? Yeah, the auditor has a seat on the Tax Expenditure Review Commission, a very uh, wonky title that may put some of our listeners to sleep, but it's a really essential one because effectively a tax break is a budget expenditure. It's just a different side of, of that coin. And we need to be thoughtful about where we are spending those dollars, so to speak. That doesn't mean that they're all bad. Many of them are good and valuable, but there are too many that, have, that were put on the books 20 or 30 years ago, they haven't been reviewed and haven't been updated in the way that state programs are. As you know, Representative, every year you go through the budget and you assess whether a program is working or not. And if it's not working, you might reduce funding for it, or you might decide, well, we actually can fix it by providing more funding. But you address that every year through the budget process. Tax expenditures don't have that same process. And so the legislature a few years ago created that commission, put the auditor on that commission, and that's where the independence of the auditor is so important, right? It's harder for any individual representative or senator to take on that issue. But when you're representing everybody across the Commonwealth and you're speaking broadly for the public interest, you can have that ability, you're, you know, you're elected every four years instead of every two years. You can have that ability to stick your neck out a little bit and say, hey guys, even though there are some, some special interests or some business interests that um, want this tax expenditure to stay in place, we actually should update it. At the same time, we might say, hey, here's a tax expenditure we found that's actually working really well. And maybe we should expand that because it's going to allow the creation of more jobs or more growth in different industries or different parts of the state. Um, so it's, a, again, a very wonky role, 
but an important and essential one for the state auditor within state government? You know, uh, that question, uh, I had two, now I've got four. Uh, uh, but but first, let me start with the simple one. Is the role of auditor as a as a statewide elected office in Massachusetts is that a is that unique across the country, Chris? So every state has a state auditor. About half of the states elect their state auditor, and the other half they're appointed either by the governor or the legislature or some other body. I think the the fact that it's elected here is really important because it provides that independence that you want in this role. Okay, and and. And another part of my question is, when you look at the role of the state auditor in in Massachusetts, and it's basically, this is a uh, sort of a branch of the question that Jeff just asked here, the role of the auditor in terms of looking at expenditures and how we do them, I'm glad to see that you, uh, you know, that you agree with part of my philosophy, which is that tax incentives or tax breaks are the same thing as expenditures. Uh, you take tax dollars, you can give them uh, in two different forms. One, you can go ahead and have a program that's paid for by the tax dollars. The other way is to take tax dollars and to provide an incentive or an offset, if you will. And I have found that uh, in my career that too many of those incentives go to the private sector. And in many instances, with no accountability. Uh, and what I mean by that is, for example, we'll give a tax break because, let's say, Raytheon has an industry here and we'll give them a tax break for X, Y, Z because they have so many jobs that they say they're going to create or they're going to keep their company here. And then what happens when they break that promise? Does the auditor uh, engage itself in what I call clawbacks? That is, okay, here's what, uh, uh, especially in working with the legislature, here's what you're putting into the legislation. Now, let's make sure, legislature, that you don't do that with no accountability on the other end. That is, if they don't fulfill, whoever it is, the business that we're giving this tax incentive to, if they don't fulfill that, then they've got to either give part or all of that money back. Can the auditor get engaged in that? So the, the auditor can't do that clawback directly, but the auditor can call out where those clawbacks are not being used or where they should be in place. And some of our tax expenditures have those clawbacks written in, and in some cases they're exercised, in some cases they're not. Other of our tax expenditures don't actually have a clawback. It just sort of says, you know, we expect that you're creating that many jobs, but there's no ability to eliminate that tax expenditure, that tax break if that doesn't happen. And I so I show you that the wind bill has clawbacks. So I will sure be calling upon you to uh, make that uh, recommendation. <laughs> and can we, and can we be not, you know, cause clawback is actually one of those wonky terms. Uh, can one of you uh, sort of define what a clawback is? Well, here's how I would define it. And I'm not the legislator here. It's when the state will say you did not meet the promises or the commitments that you made as a company to increase jobs or, located in a certain area or produce a certain number of goods or a number of suppliers in the supply chain. And because you didn't meet that commitment, we are going to essentially assess a fine that accounts for the tax break that we gave you in a prior year. So if we gave you a $30 million tax break in 2021, we may say you now have a $30 million liability in 2022 because you didn't meet the expectations of that tax expenditure. And, you know, I think too many of us as just sort of regular people on the street 
don't clearly understand that. And I think, Jeff, there is a responsibility on the part of the legislature to let the people know that these particular tax breaks are not there without accountability. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has upset a lot of our population over the years is that they think government just sort of works for the betterment of the lobbyists and the people who are there. And they don't understand that we do hold those people accountable when we write legislation that might favor them, especially around tax breaks. Uh, I have a final question uh, so we can wrap it up. Chris, I have to say that along the way in this half hour discussion, uh, along with the rest of our stalwarts, I'm giving you the badge. So you get a stalwart badge as well. But I'd like to close Honored. out. Can I keep <laughs> the esteemed badge too? You can take the esteemed. No, you, you can collect the entire set, <laughs> sort of like an Eagle Scout. You can wear them all as you, you know, sort of stump around uh, and sew them on. Have your mom sew them on. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity for a final statement before we wrap up. Yeah, thank you, Peter. I'm running because I'm the son of public school teachers, and I saw my parents digging into their own pockets to pay for school supplies for their students. We know public school teachers do that to this day across the Commonwealth. I'm running because I'm proud to be from Massachusetts, a state that is responsible for so many firsts, but we've fallen behind on everything from transportation to racial equality. And I'm running because I've seen that when we don't have that public accountability that we've talked so much about in today's conversation, that the decisions that we make as a state government end up benefiting people who are well connected to the powers that be, but they don't benefit regular families like mine and like many of your listeners. And so ultimately, I'm running to be the next chief accountability officer in Massachusetts. And I, I believe I have the experience and the background and the toughness to do that job for people. And we're making the case in every community from Pittsfield to Provincetown in Massachusetts and honored to have the chance to join all of you today and your listeners to learn more about this position and about me. And I encourage people to visit our website at DempseyForAuditor.com and get involved with our campaign. We'd be honored to have their support and their help. Great title, Chief Accountability Officer, and I think that you will probably serve us well. So certainly wish you the best of luck. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great. Thank you, Peter, and the whole team. It's been great to be with you. Well, today, uh, you know, this morning, we're delighted to have uh, the other candidate in the auditor's race, uh, Senator Diana DiZoglio, and uh, the senator and I have a great history together. We were classmates in the uh, class of 2012, entering the legislature, we served together in the House of Representatives for a few terms. And uh, then Senator Diana DiZoglio uh, decided that the, the other side of the building was uh, more to her liking. She uh, ran for Senate and she's been doing a great job over there in the Senate, did some great work in the House. Uh, and it was a delight uh, to, to be with her and uh, work with her. And uh, I'm glad that she's joining us here today and uh, glad that she's uh, sticking her neck out to be the next uh, chief accountability officer. And uh, with that, uh, Diana, why don't you tell us uh, in your eyes, you know, what the auditor does and why you think you're uh, equipped for that role? Sure, sure. Um, first of all, it's great to be here with all of you this morning. Thanks for the very gracious invitation. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I'll just tell you a little bit about myself just to get started. Uh, my name is Diana DiZoglio. I am a state senator from the Merrimack Valley running to be your next state auditor, your next chief accountability officer. And I'm running because working families deserve access to and accountability from our state leaders and agencies, regardless of our family background, our bank balance, or our zip code. I was born to a 17-year-old single mom 
grew up housing insecure and cleaned houses and waitressed my way through community college and worked hard and earned scholarships to Wellesley College to become the first in my family to graduate. But without the investments of others, I would not have had the opportunities that I did. So I know how important it is that investments made into state government through your tax dollars are taken seriously and that they're used wisely because really every dollar wasted puts another child's future opportunities at risk. And there are enough barriers to access. Beacon Hill should not be one of those barriers. But right now, Massachusetts continues to be ranked by good government groups as the least transparent and accountable of any state government in the entire nation. We're not subject to open meeting laws. We're exempt to public records laws. Taxpayer-funded non-disclosure agreements continue to silence government workers about abuse. And power is centralized in the hands of a few. Uh, so I will uh, take my experience in the legislature working on transparency, accountability, and equity, and be an auditor who opens state government to everyone and works to shift the balance of power back to working families. I've been a small businesswoman, was chief of staff to the professional firefighters of Massachusetts, working alongside of our friends in labor, led community programs at various nonprofits, and have been working in the legislature now for going on 10 years alongside of you, Rep Roy, going line by line in that state budget, uh, fighting for working families to have access and have a proven track record of tackling tough issues and important matters such as climate change, education, access to healthcare, and have been leading the charge on issues of transparency in the state Senate. And uh, at, look, as a small businesswoman, I, I just want to add this in, the small business that I owned was a very small cleaning company, a micro business, if you will. And during my time cleaning homes and office spaces, uh, what I learned is that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And, uh, you know, that's what it's going to take to make sure that we're making a difference in state government and opening up the process to everyone uh, is, is a lot of sunlight. And I'll be an auditor that shines a light in the darkest areas of government to open up uh, what's going on in Beacon Hill to all families. I'll go ahead and get started with a question that, for example, the auditor not only brings transparency to the to government, but also do you see the auditor as a uh, as an office that can advocate for change? I know you and I have had a discussion, for example, about opening up all of government to the open meetings law with respect to streaming and broadcasting of meetings from both committee meetings as well as meetings out of the House and the legislature. And again, I think that Massachusetts is so far behind. I made this comment over the weekend to a group. Uh, I happen to have some experience working in the legislature of Louisiana. And in 2010, I was doing some testimony in front of the House Education Committee, the Senate Budget Committee, and those testimonies of mine are still to this day archived and available to the general public for review from Louisiana because every single one of those meetings was live at the time and then archived. Uh, no such records exist here in Massachusetts. So when are we going to catch up with states that we may consider somewhat uh, lesser uh, technologically advanced than we are, but yet they're light years ahead of us. Can the yeah. auditor help? Absolutely, Michael. Look, and that's and that's a great, um, those are great points that you brought up regarding how other states have been able to find a way to, uh, you know, not only record things, but also archive them so that you can go back in time and grab them when you need them, grab those excerpts, right? Uh, look, here in the state of Massachusetts, just last session, 
Uh, so this was a couple of years ago now, maybe it was about a year and a half ago now, but um, everything is kind of blurring together since the pandemic, right? I think for all of us, but within the last couple of years, there was a rules debate in the state Senate uh, where I had filed 21 amendments to the rules package and was successful in passing several of them, thankfully uh, to the support of my, my colleagues. Uh, and one of those amendments was to live stream uh, all of our informal sessions in the state Senate. Believe it or not, up to just this last session, we actually weren't um, you know, necessarily having to, to live stream all of our of our sessions, including the informal session. So uh, we did incorporate that, that did change. I was really proud of the work that we did on that and the accomplishment there, but we have so much more work to do, Michael. Um, and look, currently being a Senator, it's my job to advocate, right? It's my job to legislate. It's my job to get up and to uh, fight for bills to get passed and for important policies to get passed. And I know that Rep. Roy is doing the same thing for his communities and for his pieces of legislation. Uh, that is going to be something that I think will serve the office of auditor very well, because yes, the current auditor does, in fact, having been a, for a state representative herself uh, before she was the auditor, um, she has also advocated for the passage of legislation based on her findings. So it's not just that you audit and see what's going on and identify the gaps, you then are able to go back to file legislation and to advocate for that legislation alongside of folks across the Commonwealth, including your colleagues in the legislature. So I do plan on taking my experience in the legislature, fighting for and passing important policies, like you know making sure that our all of our sessions are streamed live, um, and 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 taking that to the auditor's office. I will say I'm the only candidate in this race that's committed to auditing the legislature. And you know what I really want to look at there. Um, is ways that we can streamline processes and procedures, right, within the legislature and the administrative branch um, and across our state government. But I know from being in the legislature that there are a lot of things that, you know, I think that we've all come into as sort of being status quo and this is the way it's always been. Um, and we've been advocating for changes, but there are 40 senators, there are 160 reps, and then there's the administration that you need to pass all of these proposals by. So it's a very arduous and long process. As state auditor, I'd be able to effectuate some of the changes that I've been calling for and just go in and grab the information that we need and make that available to the public. So I am looking forward to that, but we have a lot of work to do, Michael. Like you said, you were able to get archives, uh, you know, uh, uh, statements of yours from years ago. Uh, I will tell you, it's been challenging for me just to find uh, a record of amendments that I filed to budgets over the course of the last 10 years because they're not kept anywhere. There's no record of those things kept. And that's just, you know, me filing an amendment to the budget and going back to maybe 2013 when Rep. Roy and I started together and saying, hey, can you do me a favor, Mr. Clerk, and find out where that amendment is that I filed? And there's there's not necessarily a record of it. So certainly we need to do a lot better than we have been. And I'm looking to to working on that uh, very hard as your next state auditor. I want to jump in and also welcome you to the show and thank you for joining us. I'm still trying to understand really the role of the state auditor. And I have a question because you centered working families and your experience. You know, what we have learned in, in terms of, you know, I'm putting on my academic hat right now is that public service delivery, whether it's housing vouchers or food or, you know, oftentimes people who are eligible are just unable to access them because of all the bureaucratic hurdles, because of these obstacles. Is there a role for the state auditor to make that simpler for everyday uh, residents of our 
of our Commonwealth? So great questions. So first, you're not alone in wondering what the state auditor does fully. I, my, my family, my, my closest friends are still asking me to continue to explain the role. It's not the highest profile role in Massachusetts, obviously, right? As so look, the role of the state auditor is the chief accountability officer for the state of Massachusetts and uh, the watchdog the person that uh, has the critical eye that goes through what's happening on Beacon Hill and in state government, in our state agencies, and really seeks to analyze what's going on, not just financially speaking. It's a management role. Um, of course, there are you know uh, uh, auditors that work in the office and CPAs that work in the office, so on and so forth. But really the role of the auditor, which is an elected position, is to manage that office and to make sure that we're in contact with all of you as the residents to help identify what needs to be investigated and analyzed, right? Auditing sort of is, you know, a word that 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 it seems to limit, you know, the, the full comprehensive nature of the office. I actually have said multiple times, I, I would hope that at some point we could look at changing the, the title to maybe be the state's chief accountability officer, uh, because it really does uh, have to do with a lot more than just doing financial audits and just doing that, that bean counting aspect. Really, you can look at processes and procedures within our state agencies and find out where we're falling short that's, you know, preventing us from being able to help Massachusetts families uh, like we could and like we should, right, in, in a better way. Uh, so I think about, look, the RMV scandal that took place a couple of weeks ago. I know a lot of us remember that took place in the city of Brockton. There were potentially thousands of licenses given out with no road tests having been given. Still, we don't have the answers that we need regarding that circumstance. That's not necessarily, obviously, a financial issue. That's an accountability issue. But that is a state agency. They do receive state funding. So the auditor can go into that situation and analyze, audit, investigate, and then report on the processes and procedures that have been in place that allowed for something like that to occur, which has now caused a huge public safety issue here in the state of Massachusetts. And also, uh, it's a huge accountability issue regarding, you know, again, how our tax dollars are being spent through the RMV. So all of that needs to be looked at in a more comprehensive manner. But to the second question regarding housing, for example, right? We talked about working families. Uh, yes, I grew up housing insecure. I, I was born, like I said in my opening remarks, um, to a 17-year-old single mom. She worked really hard. She was a nurse's aide. But we bounced around quite a bit and did a lot of couch surfing during my childhood. And I was blessed enough to have a lot of family members. Um, I am Italian and Greek by heritage, <laughs> uh, born in the city of Methuen. But uh, I have a lot of cousins. I'll just say that. A lot of cousins, a lot of aunts, a lot of uncles. And I was blessed to have a lot of family members that helped us out when times got rough, right? Uh, now, we were housing insecure when I was growing up due to our own family circumstances. But now you have families that are, you know, were, that they're, you know, are, are uh, two, two or three incomes coming in potentially uh, that are working multiple jobs potentially that are still housing insecure. We are in a housing crisis here in the state of Massachusetts and families are working as hard as possible, but still many times unable to afford living in the communities that they're working in with a standard of dignity. And that's unacceptable. And yes, there absolutely is a role for the auditor. Uh, I have committed to auditing the use of public land for uh, potential um, uh, housing projects. I've also committed to 
uh, auditing the Section 8 voucher program. You can use the Section 8 voucher program to rent from somebody, but you can't use that towards a home purchase, for example. Uh, so there are different opportunities that we can look at in that. And then I've committed to auditing everything down to from, you know, where we're actually making these investments and seeing if there are more creative ways to make investments in housing opportunities in Massachusetts. For example, it's it's one thing to say, you know, great, we followed all the rules and regulations in investing, we'll just say $500,000, for example, into a housing project where there are new affordable housing units going up. But it's another thing to say, you know, that we found out later on down the line that we could have spend $300,000 to secure a similar property that was already built that didn't need to be a new structure, right? And when you when you look at that and you analyze those two things, that means that potentially $200,000 could have been freed up to contribute towards more housing opportunities for folks, right? So I really want to get into those types of projects and look at how we're spending our mass works grants, right? And then how we're implementing the CDBG monies that are coming in and how those ARPA funds are getting spent across the board, because a lot of those are going back into these infrastructure projects as well. And we really need to start getting more creative. Uh, but, you know, our legislators only have so many tools in the tool belt with limited staff um, and not a lot of folks being able to provide uh, you know, much research around this in the legislature as staff, it really is incumbent upon, uh, you know, the auditor and the administration uh, and other powers that be to make sure that we're accessing all the data that's possible to be able to feed that back to our colleagues in the legislature so that, again, going back to that advocacy role in the beginning that we mentioned, so that then we can together advocate to fill the gaps that are identified and contribute back to things like housing opportunities here in the state of Massachusetts. I just wanted to jump uh, quickly back uh, on the ability to get archive testimony. One thing that uh, COVID uh, did for us over the past two years uh, is brought on uh, virtual testimony and the ability of people to testify online on Zoom. And uh, actually we have uh, created an archive of all of those hearings and all of that testimony. And um, you can search uh, right now by the committees and by the dates uh, of those hearings. And uh, my hope is that that practice will continue because, uh, you know, being a committee chairman, I saw how frustrating it was for people to have to sit in a hot room for six or eight hours. And it really was more manageable doing it on uh, online and folks who live out in the western part of the state didn't have to travel into the state house and i think that really set some uh, some good examples i hope that that uh, does continue and uh, you know uh, myself i've used some of that testimony and and taken snippets of it and done blog posts on on different areas but uh, so there is some stuff out there but i did i do not want to take away from uh, Diana and your testimony. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the auditor's role with uh, climate change and some of the legislation uh, that, that that we're looking at uh, on the offshore wind. What, what role will uh, the auditor's office have in your mind in uh, looking at that legislation and uh, looking specifically at the tax incentives and, and tax credits that we are are offering and some of the clawbacks. How will you, uh, in your job, uh, look at those issues? Yeah, for sure. And thanks for uh, championing that legislation in the House, Rep. Roy. Uh, your advocacy is very appreciated. We're looking to hopefully move uh, those things through the Senate as soon as possible. 
Um, at least I'm advocating for that. But uh, I do just want to say, um, you know, look, we haven't even gotten, unfortunately, um, to hear back from the administration that the things that we voted for together, the House and the Senate, and passed um, passed into law regarding the next generation climate roadmap, we've heard that even that bill hasn't really started to be fully implemented the way that it should have been implemented, and that certain agencies may be dragging their heels in the implementation of the legislation that we passed, unfortunately. Uh, so first things first, I'm going to be doing an audit and opening up uh, you know, some of the books and, and, and policies and procedures in some of these different state agencies, starting with DPU, the Department of Public Utilities, uh, where we hear there has been some significant heel dragging, but don't really have access to those records right now. Um, I'll be going into uh, the role seeking to immediately start to analyze where we've met our goals regarding that next generation climate roadmap and where we haven't started to meet our goals yet. I think it's important that we get on, um, you know, that we get on that, so to speak, regarding accountability as soon as is humanly possible. Because every day, every week, you know, every hour that's wasted that we haven't implemented these changes is another hour, day, and week that we're pushing off our commitment to combat climate change, right? So uh, I look to do that first and foremost. And then, you know, obviously I'm going to say when we pass uh, this bill that y'all already passed in the house, I'll be seeking to do the same thing and holding the administration's feet to the fire and making sure that the things and the provisions that we passed are actually getting implemented. I want to take it just a step further too, and just talk about um, in environmental justice for a moment and how the auditor's role can, uh, can, can really fight for environmental justice. Uh, growing up in Lawrence, growing up in Methuen, uh, I had, um, you know, my set of, of, of circumstances and, and, and things that I learned about. And, and when I, when I, you know, ended up taking an, a, an official role in my community and a leadership role and becoming state rep and then eventually becoming state senator, I started to represent other communities. Uh, and I represented other communities that that you know, now go all the way up to the city of Newburyport, for example. I have portions of North Andover, I have portions of Newburyport, portions of Amesbury. And what representing these very diverse communities and very different communities has taught me is that there are a lot of disparities uh, when it comes to state funded program, but also programs that uh, you know, are operating through our utility companies, for example, programs like Mass Save. Now, a lot of us have heard of Mass Save, and we read about the claims that we're contributing to clean energy across the state of Massachusetts, and that we're helping families to be able to afford to be able to make investments into making their homes more energy efficient, especially those who, who might not otherwise be able to afford those updates to their homes to help to contribute to clean energy and, and make sure we're protecting the environment. Um, but also, again, the whole purpose is we're, we're, we're helping families to be able to afford these opportunities, right? Uh, you know, what I've seen firsthand representing these multiple communities, some, you know, uh, gateway communities and then other, you know, very affluent communities that that um, you know have some wealthier areas uh, is that it appears as though the Mass Save program really is, which by the way we are investing all of us in our utility bills. We are paying extra into the Mass Saves program uh, for those dollars to be reinvested back in our local communities. But what's happening, it appears, is that a lot of our money, 
uh, that's being invested from folks in our gateway cities or our lower income communities are actually being invested in Damas Saves and then spent in some of our more affluent wealthy communities and the investments being made from our low-income communities are not actually going back to our low-income communities in the same way that they are to the affluent communities. It actually seems that there's a great disparity where we're actually pulling funds out of low-income communities and sending it directly to affluent communities. Now, I have a study uh, that has been shared with me by some advocates in my local community that actually has the data and has the numbers that says that this is true. I've been saying for years, it appears that this is the case. And now I have a study available to me that actually demonstrates that it is in fact true that we're sending millions potentially, we're taking millions potentially from our lower income communities and funneling it to, to, to wealthier, more affluent communities. So that's something that I wanna take a look at because we've been asking our utility companies for their own data around the Mass Saves program. We haven't been able to get information from them. Uh, I'm actually working right now on a piece of legislation to address that and to require accountability and ask them to produce a report that demonstrates that Mass Saves is actually doing what it says it's supposed to do. But as auditor, I'll be able to report on that program and other programs like it to make sure that, again, we're not taking money from our lowest income families in the Commonwealth uh, claiming that we're taking money away so that we can reinvest it in those communities and then actually, in reality, funneling it to wealthier, more affluent communities. Well, I'm, well, I, for one, am glad to hear that and would also ask you as well, what can, what can the auditor do to help make sure that, and you mentioned it earlier, that there's accountability uh, with respect to the way that we spend our tax dollars, as well as advocating. You mentioned clawbacks. And uh, uh, again, let me ask you a similar question that, uh, uh, that I've asked before, which is explain what clawbacks are and explain uh, how it is that you intend to make sure that any money that goes into the private sector, for example, if utility companies are not doing what they're supposed to do, how do you hold them accountable? Uh, either through clawbacks or through penalties, fines, whatever it may be. Right. So uh, in my opinion, a clawback is trying to get funds back that have already been dispersed or allowed to uh, you know, be given out in, in the form of a tax break, for example. Right. So clawbacks, we, the most recent example is when we actually saw that the Department of Unemployment um, Assistance, DUA, uh, we found out that unfortunately, the administration, due to failure in processes and procedures, once again, uh, dispersed, I believe it was around 2.6 or 7 billion, uh, and Rep Roy, correct me if I'm off a little bit there, but I believe it was right around 2.6 or 7 billion uh, was dispersed in overpayments uh, to folks receiving unemployment um, that, you know, again, it was, it was called an overpayment, right? Uh, and that had happened through the DUA, uh, Department of Unemployment Assistance, from our Unemployment Assistance Trust Fund. Um, once, those, once those funds go out, it is incredibly difficult to uh, get those funds back in, right? They've already been dispersed and many families have already spent those dollars. And frankly, it's wrong of the administration to ask for those funds back uh, from you know, many of these uh, working families, uh, you know, lower income families is what we found where the, where the majority was dispersed uh, after they already said 
that it was okay, that they were right in just, you know, distributing the money. Um, they had said it was right in the administration. Department of Unemployment Assistance had said that it, you know, it was correct what they were doing. So there was no error on the part of these families. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. So to ask for funds to be, you know, brought back in, it's incredibly difficult to do that, right? And and the way to best prevent wasting the, you know, funds in this way and the inappropriate, uh, or to make sure that there's accountability to your point is to make sure that we're getting it right in the first place, right? To make sure that there are correct processes and procedures so that these types of things don't happen to begin with. So that later on down the line, we don't have a circumstance like we just did where there are literally billions of dollars that have gone out uh, with no accountability as to how they've been distributed. Uh, so I would seek to be an auditor that analyzes uh, these processes and procedures, which I've actually already committed to doing, especially as it pertains to the Department of Unemployment Assistance, committed to auditing DUA to look at their processes and procedures to help to shine a light on where things went wrong so that we can work together to make sure that those type of errors are never made again. And regarding corporate tax breaks, part of my social justice and equity audit plan does include uh, a portion, if you scroll down, if you go to my website, www.dianaforma, that's D-I-A-N-A-F-O-R-M-A.com, you can click on my audit plan. And if you scroll down, there'll be a portion of that audit plan that talks about the need for accountability with these corporate tax breaks that are given out. The state of Colorado allows their state auditor the opportunity to go in and to investigate and audit these tax breaks that are given out just to make sure, again, that there's accountability happening. If we're going to be giving tax breaks, we should make sure that those tax breaks are actually merited, right, in accordance with the law. And right now, we don't have really any way to make sure uh, through the auditor's role that we're able to actually analyze whether or not these tax breaks are appropriate. Uh, so I am going to do what uh, our current auditor, Suzanne Bump, uh, has done in the years that she's been in office, and I'm going to continue to advocate for the passage of legislation to empower the auditor's office to be able to analyze these corporate tax breaks so we can make sure that, you know, the, the funds that we're allowing not to be paid into the system are actually being used correctly and wisely and effectively and appropriately. I know we have to wrap up, but I just want to jump in on one quick thing that uh, deals with these clawback issues, and it was uh, it was a uh, an inside baseball conversation uh, that we had uh, allowed the utilities to make investments and to uh, recover all reasonably and prudently incurred costs for implementing a plan that's supposed to benefit consumers. And we added a line to that clause and look for this in the Senate when they try to pull it out. And it said, if an electric company fails to deliver the projected customer benefits associated with any specific investment or group of investments during the course of a plan, the department shall prohibit the company from earning a return on those investments until such time as the company delivers the customer benefits. I can't tell you the grumbling I heard about trying to uh, remove that phrase from the legislation. Uh, we refused to do it. It was in there. And uh, that's the type of thing uh, that we need more of in our legislation. And I'm sure that uh, as an auditor, uh, you will insist on that type of language, but look for it when it comes your way uh, in the Senate. 
Oh, I plan on it, Rep. Roy, and I will be working alongside of you to try to make sure that it is included in the conference committee report as well, that it makes it through uh, you know, that process and that when it go, gets set to the administration, obviously advocating that that particular line amongst others that are very, very important to aspects of accountability do not get uh, somehow lost as we call it during the uh, during the process uh, that is very lengthy for sure. Uh, but look, thank you so much folks for having me on here today. It is uh, a great honor to be able to join you. I'm excited about the conversation that we got to have. I wanna invite anybody who uh, is is listening at home, please feel free uh, to contact me. My number is 978-984-7747. My email is info at dianaforma.com. That's Diana with one N. Uh, and please check out my website, www.dianaforma.com. Check out my audit plan. I'd love to earn your support as we head into election season. The uh, Democratic primary is on September 6th. I will be on your ballot. Once again, Diana DeZoglio, state senator, running to be your next state auditor. I'd love to earn your support. Thanks again for having me, everyone. Senator, we're looking forward to having you back as we begin to approach election season. And uh, great discussion today. I have to say we've covered an awful lot of ground. And thank you for what has been clearly a very cogent discussion about a lot of important issues. And we'll do more, won't we, guys? Yeah, we will. Up. Excellent. And so, again, thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Jay. This has been More Perfect Union, along with Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and Representative Jeff Roy. Until the next time. Thank you for being with us. This is Franklin Public Radio.